the lie that poetry tells is constant as the truth itself. Without the lies and the false beliefs, where would we be? Where would we be? Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm an India. And we are your theory doctors. Welcome back. Hi there. Hope you've all been well. Hope you're having a good summer. If it is summer where you are. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, we are recording this on the 8th of July. Yeah. And as we speak, the country we are living in is deciding who its new Prime Minister is going to be. Except the country isn't really deciding. Yeah. How does uh, it work? Explain... To the non-British folks. Okay, so... Um, or maybe to the British folks as well. Yeah, so my position here is slightly more nuanced. There's a there, there's a lot of people talking about democracy deficit because we aren't electing a prime minister, a, a tiny proportion of the country is. But I don't think that's necessarily a problem because the system is based on the, the principle that we don't elect prime ministers. Um, that doesn't mean to say I'm happy with how it's going, but there's for a slightly <laughs> different reason, as it were. So, Britain, for those of you who don't know, is a parliamentary system. We elect parliaments, we elect members of parliament. The whole country is divided into a number of constituencies. Each constituency has its own member of parliament. The total number of uh, members of parliament are added up. The total for each party is added up. The party that has the largest share of seats in parliament gets to run its government, and that party gets to decide who the Prime Minister will be. So unlike the presidential system in America, for example, where everybody elects the president, here we don't elect the Prime Minister. The Prime Minister is the leader of the party that is that has the largest share of seats in Parliament. Now, um, the current Prime Minister, Theresa May, resigned a few weeks ago. Importantly and interestingly, she didn't resign as Prime Minister. She resigned as her party leader. Uh, so now we are going through a leadership election for the Conservative Party, which is the party with the largest share of uh, uh, members of Parliament uh, at the moment. Whoever becomes the leader of the of the Conservative Party will, by default, become Prime Minister. As I said, I don't necessarily have a problem with that system. That's the way the de- way British parliamentary democracy works. It's the way Indian parliamentary democracy works. The problem is that. The Conservative Party, which is going through a party leadership election now, doesn't have a majority in Parliament. So we are going from one Prime Minister to another Prime Minister, an unelected Prime Minister, as it were, a Prime Minister who hasn't faced the country through general elections. But And, and that transition happens all the time. It happened uh, when uh, we moved from David Cameron to Theresa May. It happened earlier when we moved from... Uh, Tony Blair to uh, Gordon Brown, but the big difference this time is that the government doesn't have a majority. So the government doesn't have an electoral mandate of a majority. So the new Prime Minister will not command the majority of Parliament unless they renew what they call the confidence and supply uh, arrangement they have with with the uh, 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 fringe party in, in the... Yeah. In the context of British politics, uh, the Northern Irish Democratic Unionist Party. Um, 
as we speak, we don't know who the new Prime Minister will be. It'll yes. be one of two... Characters. Fine and upstanding gentlemen. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hope you could tell the irony in my voice there. Yeah, how we feel. Yes. Uh, Boris Johnson and or Jeremy Hunt. It'll probably be Boris Johnson, the way polls are looking at, looking like at the moment. Um, of course, as we've said many times before, and I'm sure you know, this is all happening in the context of Brexit. Uh, once the new Prime Minister is named, he will have less than three months, just over three months, to negotiate a new deal, uh, or take the country out on, an, on no deal, or negotiate an extension. And we're all waiting with bated breath to see what happens to this country that we live in. Yeah, it's fascinating as a as a sort of insider outsider, and you you sort of are also a little bit insider outsider. Um, but your citizenship is here, um, although you you know theoretically you you could go to India, but that you do not have an Indian passport. I don't. You are a British citizen. No. Though, as we've said before, um, call back to our episode on Shamima Begum, Britain could theoretically decide to take my citizenship away from me. Uh, Britain has done that in the past. If it can prove to its own satisfaction that I am entitled to the citizenship of another country, uh, then Britain could take my citizenship away. Though, you know, I have a huge uh, level of privilege because, as things stand, I have the, the... the right to live in this country and the right to vote and the right to all, all the citizenship rights that that implies. Yeah. Yeah. We are taught we're, if this conversation was inspired by and is inspired by the leadership election taking place in the Conservative Party right now. Um, it is fascinating that the, the Boris Johnson character is kind of in multiple ways his sort of persona, but also his character. Um, have been part of kind of public political discourse for a long time. Um, I would recommend there's a really good article in The New Yorker that was published, uh, I think, the week of the 24th of June um, about Boris Johnson and uh, Brexit and his kind of uh, his career and his sort of political positions and um, it is really interesting. If you're interested in Boris, we're not going to talk quite so much about yeah. him specifically today. Yeah. But if you are interested in him, I would recommend checking out that article. We can put a link to it. Yeah. But obviously, The New Yorker has a paywall. So yes. apologies in advance for that. This con- was, The conversation is more about a kind of broader phenomenon that you've yeah. noticed as part of the discourse happening in this particular leadership election. Because you've noticed that things have changed. The way the, that the candidates have changed and the conversations that they're having and the questions that they're being asked are really different yeah. from the leadership election that took place a couple of years ago after the Brexit referendum, for example. Yeah, so some of the changes are, are targeted specifically at the Brexit referendum. And I, I, I'd encourage our listeners, if you haven't, to go back to and listen to our uh, episode that we called Not Looking Forward to the EU Referendum. Uh, you made a very, very interesting point in that episode about how the history will be rewritten depending on how the it result goes. goes. Yeah. So if if as we were as we were talking in that episode we didn't know whether Britain would vote to leave or vote to remain. 
and your argument was, I think, that if, if, Britain, vo if Britain votes to remain, then it will always have voted to remain. And if Britain votes to leave, then it will always have voted to leave. And in, in other words, the, the uncertainty of the, uh, the time leading up to the referendum will retrospectively be rewritten as, uh, as certain, as teleological, leading yeah. to a definite point in history with a definite decision. Yes. That was, that was always already certain, as it were. Yeah. And I think following on from that, this is a, a slightly uh, different application of that idea, I think, which is, for, and there were, you know, originally a, a much larger number of candidates who stood for the, for the Tory party leadership election. And what was fascinating was, it doesn't matter how those individuals voted in the referendum originally when before the referendum happened now none of them really are make were, were making a case that britain should stay in the eu jeremy hunt voted to remain boris johnson voted to leave but now partly because they are their constituency is the tory party membership none of them are able to make a case that the referendum should be rerun or the decision was bad for the country. Whether they believe that or not, the certainty of the Brexit referendum result means that that is the only course of action that is sort of politically viable. And this, it seems to me, comes to represent or symbolise quite a radical shift that has happened in the Tory party, in the Conservative party, over the last few years. Europe has always been, ever since there has been an EU, Europe has always been a really sharply divisive issue within the Conservative Party. Pretty much every Conservative leader going back to before Margaret Thatcher lost their leadership as a result of Europe, right? as a result of their positions within Europe. So there's always been a Eurosceptic and a, a, a Europhile wing within the Conservative Party uh, and the historically the party has tried and usually failed to create a sort of easy balance between these two wings. What's fascinating now is that the pro-EU wing of the party has pretty much vanished. Has there, there are a couple of dissenting voices here and there but generally speaking the pro-EU moderate within scare quotes it's not really a necessarily as simple as a right far right issue but the, it does map onto that slightly uneasily but that moderate pro EU uh, for those of you who know these names like you know Kenneth Clark or Michael Heseltine uh, wing of the party has has been destroyed the the party is now structurally institutionally hegemonically an anti-EU party uh, the irony, of course, is that the part, part of the reason the referendum was called in the first place was David Cameron, Prime Minister at the time, thought that he could, by winning a referendum, in, or, in other words, if the Remain side won, then he thought he could manage the Leave side, the anti-EU side, sort of out of existence or out of power through this process of a referendum. And, of course, he failed hugely. He lost his lost his leadership, he lost his prime ministership, and 
as a result, this pro-EU wing of the party has disappeared. And that seems to me mirroring sort of remarkably closely what has happened over the last decade in the Republican Party in America. Yes. Where the... the what was hege- the hegemonic force in the party? You know, sort of very imprecise tradition. But you could chart a tradition from Reagan to George H.W. Bush to George W. Bush to Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell circa 2006, yeah. 2007. And, and that around 2007 leading into 2008-2009, this power centre within the Republican Party came up against the challenge of the Tea Party, right? The, the right fringe, what started off as a right fringe of the Republican Party, and, and thought in the way that Cameron thought he could manage the, the, the pro-Brexit wing of his own party, uh, this, the, the power centre of the Republican th- Party thought they could manage out their right flank and, and control yeah. it. The right flank in the U.S. being more tied to religious fundamentalism. Sure. And so the Republican Party is the uneasy home of both pro-business, libertarian-leaning, mm. small government types and evangelical big government in terms of regulating social laws. Um, and it is that right wing that um, was partially an inspiration for Margaret Atwood's uh, Handmaid's Tale written in the 1980s. It's it's that, and it's considered to be, until recently, it was considered to be a sort of fringe of the Republican Party. Yeah. Like the Eurosceptics always there. Yeah. And always kind of needing to be dealt with in some mm. way. And always in local government and kind of local and state government making laws that are to kind of progressive thinkers and yeah. even to kind of the more moderate business wing yeah. unsavory. Yeah. Um, but it is not, it's not always at the forefront of, of the party's mind. Yeah. And when it is, it's seen as something that is smaller than the party. A sort of necessary evil. Yeah. We need them to get votes in certain constituencies among certain demographics. But we control them, not they control us. Yeah. And that has seems to me completely shifted for both the Republican Party and the Conservative Party, where the the hegemonic centers of power within the party are now respectively the the far right evangelical uh, wing in the Republican Party and the ideologically anti EU virulently anti-immigration wing of the Conservative Party. And that shift fascinates me because the, not least they're happening around the same time. Mm-hmm. Much like the Reagan-Thatcher shift was happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though I've been outlining this narrative of a, of a failed management issue, as it were, where, where David Cameron and uh, Mitch McConnell can be personified, if you like, as as the inability to control these these wings of their party. But even as I put it in that narrative, it seems to me far too clean 
Right, it's far too easy. There seems to me something that something else must be going on here. And it's it's that that shift that we want to discuss today. Yeah. Well the so here in Britain, the well in the UK, the Labour Party lost its majority in the 2010 elections and the Labour Party was seen to have been and this is I mean the irony is that David Cameron wasn't unilaterally a bad politician in terms of like the the strategizing of a politician to get what they want done um, he was not a terrible he, yeah. he was a pretty good opposition yeah. because um he was able to mount a very clear, understandable set of campaign policies when he was in opposition. And one of those yeah. was that the Labour government, yeah. and specifically Gordon Brown, yeah. which is... I mean, the, the it's totally wrong. Like, mm. it's factually incorrect. And to talk about it 10 years later yeah. is like, oh, obviously, yeah. this is stupid. Yeah. Was, but that they were responsible for the recession. Yes. Which is absolutely bonkers yes. that for a long time, and it was a talking point up until the EU referendum and the Scottish yeah. referendum became yeah. the key talking yeah. points, that the Labour Party was responsible... For the recession. For the yes. recession. Yes. And, spe- and also that the Labour Party was responsible for the negative effects, the side effects of austerity. Yeah. Which is Fascinating because to an American, yeah. obviously, like I know that we are responsible. Yeah. I know that Americans, like, what is this British people taking credit for the recession? They didn't did not engineer that. What? This is a this is a Wall Street victory. Yes. Come on. Yeah. And but it was such a successful story. Yeah. And yeah. that story in and of itself doesn't feel very right wingy. Yeah. It doesn't feel it doesn't feel like a, a kind of, um, it doesn't feel prescient in any way or it doesn't feel like it, it, it speaks to kind of worse things to come. No. But pretty quickly after that, the Conservative Party moves pretty quickly towards the I guess it's not even the party itself. I mean, I guess we're sort of framing it as like the parties get these parties are getting pulled yeah. to the right by a fringe movement. But I sort yeah. of think it's the opposite that the fringe movement is breaking down the barriers that the the mainstream yeah. of the parties have had steadily kind of built up and assumed yeah. were strong. Yeah. And that actually those barriers weren't strong. Yeah. And the the sort of fringe either individuals or people or characters or ideas are able to kind of percolate through and then penetrate into the center of the party. And so you have a kind of breaking in as opposed to a pulling out from the center. And I mean, I guess austerity didn't help. They probably shouldn't have, probably shouldn't have, have done that. It probably was bad. But austerity worked in different ways in America than it did in Britain. So in the US, yeah. So we had a sort of problem with austerity, but we didn't have... You didn't have a government austerity. We didn't have a central government top-down form of austerity. So in the US, we had... It was far more diffuse. But also, one of the things that that kept rolling over in the US was 
we we have a food economy. Yeah. So the United States can, it doesn't, but it could feed itself. And there's a massive kind of diverse economy in the United States that doesn't exist in the UK. Yeah. And so the the federal government in the United States yeah. doesn't need to regulate the economy in the same way. Yeah. The mechanics are all neoliberal. It's all yeah. the same in terms of it's all designed to generate yeah. profit for people. But the the kind of way that it's done yeah. and the economies themselves are a little bit yeah. different. So we didn't have a government run aus- government led austerity. We also yeah. have a state system, a federal system. So the federal government can't can't determine where money goes in yeah. the same way. So yeah. states have a lot of control yeah. over where money yeah. goes. Yeah. So certain states are more affected by austerity like yeah. policies. Yeah. But other states don't impose yes. yeah. austerity in the same way. So yeah. the U.S. doesn't have, and and interestingly enough, the U.S. has recovered from the recession in a way that the U.K. has not. not. Yeah. And the that is basically the extent of my knowledge of the economy. No, but if 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 we can make a compelling case that there is an austerity connection to the the shift in the Tory party in Britain, uh, that case is harder to make for America. Yeah. For the Republican Party in America. The Republican Party in the US, I think... So what's really interesting, though, is is what's happened to the Republican Party, to me, is not... It's not a single issue. Yeah. The EU is a single issue type yeah. thing. And anti-EU or EU skeptics, Europe yeah. skeptics, as yeah. they're called... That is their one and only issue. Yeah. It tends to be that's the thing they care the, yeah. the politicians. I mean, which is which in sort of in political science terms is absolutely fascinating because really the first time that I know of, I don't know of a a precedent here where a single issue has become more important than all other forms of political identity, including party affiliation. So it matters less now whether you're a Tory party member or a Labour party member, then it matters if you're, if you're pro or anti-EU. Yep. And that's huge. Yep. As, as I said, I don't know of a precedent for that. And the Republican Party isn't centred around a, a key divisive issue in that way. No, and the Tea Party was a really strange... It was a really strange alliance. Yeah. And it was a small but vocal group of legislators in the house and the senate and also in state certain state governments that came together around from uh, around a sort of marriage between libertarianism and evangelical social values so the idea was that the the government would enact laws that would protect certain evangelical values that became more important yeah. in the 90s and early 2000s. Yeah. Issues like abortion. Yeah. Issues like gay marriage. Yeah. Um, and those those issues were symbolic. They're not symbolic anymore, of course, because law, a lot of laws have been passed in the last 15 years yeah. around them to yeah. kind of... That have very real effects on people's yeah. lives but they were quite symbolic yeah. of wider 
social trends. So mm-hmm. gay marriage became a sort of yeah. symbolism of, of the, the kind of um, the left wing, yeah. essentially like homophobic, right? It's homophobic, the gay, a sort of gay attack yeah. Yeah. on family values. Yeah. But gay marriage isn't, in real kind of terms, it's not the actual issue. Gay yeah. marriage itself doesn't threaten yeah. families. Yeah. It's the fact that gay people can live their lives yes. without discrimination yes. and you yes. can live next door yes. to a gay family yes. and your kid goes to school yeah. with kids who have gay parents, right? Yeah. That's a, yeah. And that's the threat. Yeah. It isn't the marriage itself. Yes. What's fascinating about the Republican, that right wing of the Republican Party and the Tea Party is that they're able to turn that fear yes. into a single issue. Yeah. And so they turn them into single issue voters. Yeah. Abortion, similarly, it's not the, it's not abortion itself in the procedure, although yeah. that gets people really head, really head up because it's, yeah. it's quite a, because it's such a visceral concept, yeah. but it is more about the role of women in society. Yeah. And so it's a response to wider second and third wave yeah. feminist movements yeah. and changing yeah. ideas around what a woman's body is yeah. Yeah. and who a woman is as a person. So, yeah. but abortion becomes this really easy, yeah. clear cut yeah. issue. And as opposed to like, let's just generally change the constitution yeah. to say that women are objects. You, know, you can't really yeah. do that. No. It doesn't work. No, but you can, for example, go to the Voting Rights Act. Exactly. Where, where a, a, a single issue, you know, Black Lives Matter versus Blue Lives Matter, for example. Yeah. That issue gets mobilized in a way to tackle what the right sees as the threat. Yeah. Which is black people being able to vote not white people being able to vote. So so you can you can see the gutting of the Voting Rights Act as a prelude to what might be coming next in terms of attempting to rewrite Roe v. Wade or, or whatever. You know, the, the, the connections you are making with general societal issues and particular key threats are, are clear, right? Yeah. Yeah, although there's two things going on there. There's one that's working at the level of the government and the courts. Yes. And that's the Voting Rights Act. Yes. And that is a sort of the party wants to maintain its power structure and, and yeah. maintain itself in Washington. Yeah. The other is the public discourse side yes. of things. And they are obviously related and, and interconnected, yeah. but I don't think they are the no, same the thing. Same. No. And what was really fascinating about the EU referendum was the the leave campaign yeah. was able yeah. to turn yeah. the eu into an immigration yeah vote yeah which is i mean it's fascinating politicking yeah um it's it feels you know obviously to us because we work with nuance and we work with complexity and the idea behind what we do is that we yeah. are engaged in nuance yeah. and we're able yeah. to hold yeah. more than one position yeah. at once and i think for us it's so frustrating yeah that other people actively are like you know what i'd rather not do that yeah i'd rather not try for that and so we exist in a sort of world where you if you are able to manipulate complexity turn it into using yeah. discursive techniques yeah. and rhetoric turn it yeah. into a single issue yeah and and that's the issue I mean if 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 we are correct in identifying this sort of new right 
if you like, a, a new, new right in, in both the Tory party and the Republican party, then the thing that connects them isn't abortion, the, the right in Britain, as things stand, don't particularly yeah. care about abortion, or at least not vocal about it. And not the an, thing, there's not an institutional framework yes, to combat abortion yes, in the way there is yeah, in the US. Or, or not yet. Maybe, maybe there, is an, there, there will be an attempt to build it. But the thing that connects the, the right of the Tory party in Britain and the right of the Republican party in America is immigration. Yeah. Right? That, is, that is the one, the single issue pivot around which they are structuring their political identity. Uh, it's the it's the one thing that that makes Trump so popular because I mean he shares so little with the evangelical right otherwise. Yeah. So and and Boris Johnson, yeah. you know, became the sort of figure of the you know the figurehead of the Leave campaign. Yeah. But in fact, he himself is kind is is politically vacuous yes. the way that Trump is. Yeah. They yeah. shape shift. Yeah. Except I think the one area where Trump doesn't shapeshift is race. Oh, yeah. Right? That's the one thing that he, he genuinely cares about is yeah. to reduce the number of people of colour in, in America. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he doesn't care about abortion in terms of gender as long as he gets to do what he wants with women. Yeah. It, nothing else matters. So the only thing that he really cares about is race. Yeah. Is the fact then that this, the the shift in power that's happening in the two two mainstream right-wing parties in Britain and America at the same time is it 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 seems to me that the fact that this shift is centered around immigration that must be connected somehow yes what is the connection there well obviously there's racism yeah so there's the the way that racism as an ideology works is yeah. much older so yeah. that is at play and has yeah. always been at play yeah. i think I suspect a lot of it has to do with, not in a causal way, but in a sort of correlated way, the recession. Mm. Where the recession was caused by a number of, of factors having to do with economics and people who work in the economic kind of arena, bankers and hedge fund managers and... Um, and politicians who are familiar with Wall Street and they and work with yeah. Wall Street and they engineered a particular kind of set of like practices yeah. and stuff that led to a recession that requires a bit yeah. of expert knowledge. Yes. Um, in order to explain the recession itself requires a bit of jargon. It requires some definitions. It requires explaining to people yeah who don't normally think about the the kind of underworkings of the economy, um, how, how that works. And to explain finance to entire populations around the yes. world and to make the connection between what's happening outside of Wall Street, things like uh, unemployment going up, um, standard of living going down, you know, the, those kinds of ways that people's lives are affected and mortgages on wall street and you know betting on bad yeah. debt like yeah. those connections aren't clear hmm. but you know what's been a really kind of compelling narrative and that politicians know always works and it's been working for the entirety of the 20th century it's brown people 
and black people crossing the border and they're stealing your jobs. That's why tomatoes cost more now. That's why your kid can't get a job. That's why you haven't gotten a raise. It's immigrants, which is fascinating to me. But I mean, in the US they've been using, they use immigration and have mm-hmm. done for yeah. 120 years. So the, this, this is what's really interesting. Part of the reason why I wanted to do this program is I've been um, re-watching old episodes of The West Wing. Uh, if you don't know The West Wing, it's a seven series uh, TV program set in and around a Democratic White House, uh, a White House with a Democratic president. You used uh, to be on primetime on Thursdays. It's, it's on Netflix in, in America, I believe, but I don't think it's on Netflix in Britain. Um, and in and, and one of the things that West Wing, West Wing fans, fans always talk about, uh, and, and there is something to this, which is how prescient it has been in various things, right? So yeah. uh, it depicted the, the, the election, the presidential election with which the, the last series ends uh, has a democratic candidate of color who's a young charismatic politician who talks about hope and change. Uh, and this is, this of course predates Obama. Uh, there, there are lots of ways in which the West Wing says and does things which then turn out to be the case, right? The, the, uh, one of the, the centerpieces of uh, President Bartlett, who's the, who's the president for the seventh series of the, the, the show, one of, one of the centerpieces of his foreign policy legacy as he's about to leave the office is to open up negotiations and diplomacy with Cuba. You know, there the, are the lots of things that you, you sort of stop and go, actually, that's really remarkable that you figured that out, that that would happen in that way. What's fascinating is the thing that they predicted, which not only didn't happen, but at this point looks like it couldn't happen, is in this election, the Barack Obama figure, uh, a candidate who becomes president, spoiler alert, called Matt Santos, he goes up against a Republican, the Republican candidate, someone called Arnold Vinick, who is a California Republican, who is presented as a moderate Republican, who is, whose center, political ideology is centered around small government, uh, low taxes, pro-business, He's pro-environment, he's pro-business, he is pro-choice, but part of his campaign is to double the border patrol on the on the Mexico border. So in other words, there is a, a, a kind of Republican that is anti-immigration, is about mm-hmm. controlling immigration, but who is moderate in, quote-unquote moderate in all the other senses, and pro-choice. And this is the can- this is the candidate that the writers of the West Wing conjure up as the strongest possible challenge to a democratic president. And what's fascinating is I don't see that happening today. I don't see a pro-business, low-tax, pro-environment, pro-choice candidate ever winning the nomination of the Republican Party in the foreseeable future. No. But I also don't think, I mean, the, the Republican Party is, yeah, it's completely different. It is the Republican Party. And it's, there were those candidates, I mean, 
the the candidate the West Wing kind of puts out there is a is sort of cleaned up version of Mitt Romney. Yeah. Because um, Mitt Romney's got some other weird kind of stuff going on, um, and he's obviously super religious and not pro-choice. Um, he's you know he's quite yeah. anti-choice, but um, and John McCain as well. But yeah. but John McCain was pretty pretty close. Yeah. To to that. Yes. What is really interesting though is across the board the Democratic Party, the Democrats and the Republicans equally have been responsible for using, exploiting, and actively, actively intervening on the border. Yes. So a lot of the policies that Trump is now enacting were made possible through Obama's policies. It's just that he wasn't publicizing them. What's different is that Trump is flaunting it. Trump is quite proud of it. Yeah. Um, he's pleased with what he's doing. Yeah. He sees it as a success. Yeah. He's fulfilling his campaign yeah. promises. So there is a different kind of presentation of what he's doing. Yeah. Um, Obama, the Obama administration, uh, increased deportations, yeah. um, beefed up deportation centers mm-hmm. and detention centers, um, rolled back uh, asylum programs, um, George W. Bush as well oversaw the 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 rise of the the militias um, on the border, and then Bill Clinton yeah. before that yeah. was responsible for um, the the early stages of policies that that forced migrants into desert regions yeah. and into really into yeah. so that that the way the the immigration has been managed and the conditions whereby dealing with immigration are kind of created and also sold to the public is not actually a partisan issue. Yeah. It is a social justice issue and a human rights issue, obviously. I'm not disputing that. Yeah. But the 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 issue itself yeah. is at the heart yeah. of the political apparatus. As it is in Britain. So one of the things that I I remember thinking most powerfully in the aft- in in the lead up to and aftermath of the Brexit referendum, is there isn't there is no longer and I still don't think there is a, a space at the moment, a space within mainstream politics in Britain, from which one can articulate a pro-immigration stance. Yeah, right. That space has disappeared. I think there's possibly a rhetoric versus policy different sort of practical policy difference here yeah but i think that space does exist in american politics you know there are voices within the democratic party that is arguing for the abolishing of ice for example yes now they may not get to the get to hold power within the party but if you think on every other issue their position vis-a-vis the right left spectrum isn't all that different from someone like Corbyn? Yeah. But Corbyn can't talk about abolishing immigration control. Yeah. And that that difference seems to me really fascinating as well. Yeah. Which is even though the, the rightward shift in both countries is the common thing is immigration, there is a difference in the way the mainstream left in Britain and the mainstream left in America are talking about immigration, or at least certain sections of it. Yeah. Well, the in the U.S., the left is a little bit 
more diffuse. Yeah. In terms of that, there are more options. Part of this is just is is practical. There are more people. It's a far bigger country that's more varied geographically, yeah. economically, racially. socially, racially, and you have a far stronger um, demographically. You have a far stronger kind of wing of. Uh, people of color who are able to i.e. have the capital whether that's social or cultural or um, monetary capital to mount uh, pro-immigration campaigns so you have it plus you have in the this is kind of a, a weird sort of bit of geography but in the u.s you have border states yeah and then you have the rest of the country yes and they're different. Yes. When you're in border states and the yeah. way that border states are, yeah. they have different concerns and their constituents have different concerns from the rest of the country. In Britain, the whole thing is a border state yeah. because it's an island. So when you talk about border states, is there from the outside, very much the outside, it seems like there is a difference between the southern border states and the northern border states. Oh, yes, of course. Right? But yeah. the northern border states is with the U.S.-Canada border is actually really fascinating. Yeah. And we could do a whole episode yeah. on the U.S.-Canada border. Yeah. Because after 9-11, the U.S.-Canada yeah. border actually becomes a, a site of, of fear. And they yeah. trial yeah. a lot of uh, programs, uh, like biometric programs and stuff, in on the U.S.-Canada border first yeah. before yeah. implementing them in Mexico. And so there's a really interesting relationship between yeah. the northern and the southern yeah, yeah, border. Yeah, yeah. So the northern border, it does have a bit of anxiety. There's, yeah. there's anxiety, and that's around yeah. terrorists. Yeah. So Canada is this kind of socialist, democratic yeah. socialist state. Yeah. They let everybody in, yeah. so the terrorists will come in yeah. through the through the north. That's a, that is the, yeah. a sort of anxiety. Yeah. But the numbers and the type of immigration yeah. aren't the same. No. So the southern border states have always dealt with this pro- and it, and it's a problem that pre and I say problem is in a kind of productive problem yeah. like it's a, it's a really interesting yeah. thing to talk yeah, about yeah. it's a problem that predates the border mm. because the region itself has mm. always been contested yeah. and it's been contested by various players and actors in the United States got involved yeah relatively late yeah. compared to the native populations that are there in the Spanish yeah. colonizers and then the Creole communities yeah. that, that crop yeah. up over yeah. time. And then you have the presence of um, the French kind of in the middle of the United States, the Russians from the mm. north, mm. and then the Americans come in. The United yeah. States enters this arena, yeah. which is essentially like characterized in sort of Spanish colonial mindset as a, a sort of war zone yeah. because the, the indigenous tribes there, um, the Navajo Apache are the most famous um, because they were some of the most successful. Um, but there are other tribes at work there creating a sort of border region yeah. already. So this, the, the region itself is always an issue for the United States. It always presents a challenge to sovereignty and nationalist sentiment and rhetoric and power. Yeah. It's always a sort of a, a presents the possibility or poses the possibility of um, vulnerability. Yeah. It reminds the United States that it's a vulnerable place. Yeah. And the people who live there yeah. are complicated. Yeah. They have kind of kinship ties and cultural ties yeah. 
to the region, yeah. which is a, a very hybridized place because yeah. for centuries yeah. it has been a place of cultural yes. contact and yes. encounter. Yes. So you have a really kind of, at the kind of grassroots yeah. on the ground level, a really complex social and cultural arena. And then at this sort of geopolitical level, you have a, a reminder yeah. that at any time yeah. your country could be victimized yeah. or like to use like really kind of awful either homophobic or misogynist sort of fears of being like penetrated yeah. and that fear is there yeah. Yeah. and it gets mobilized and it's it sits at the heart of american identity yeah at the 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 idea of america as being strong or as yeah. having a right to exist and it yeah it's so central to american yeah. history yeah Although this isn't how it's taught. No. Um, it's certainly not yeah. how it's kind of discussed. Yeah. But it's it's so central, as central as the story of slavery, I think, yeah. that the issue of immigration holds mm. this role. Mm. It sits yeah. at the at this in this place where it can be used in order to to kind of move discourse to yeah. the right or the left. Yeah. And of course it's not just moving discourse, it's changing policy, yeah. which affects people's lives. Yeah. So the the quick shift that we're talking mm. about is a sort of, I guess it's a kind of knock-on effect, a sort yeah. of 9-11, war on terror, war yeah. in Iraq, yeah. recession. Yeah. Right. Let's go back to our yeah. age-old scapegoat, the age-old explanation yeah. for the the um, aggressor towards us. Yeah. It's brown people. Yeah. And they're on the border. Yeah. Which is a really... It's kind of a distressing thought. Yeah. And some of it is definitely familiar in the British context, right? The the, the idea of an island nation being being swamped because, you know, they're too... Yeah. It, we are too small a country. We can't afford to take everybody. Yeah. Um, and there, there are definite parallels in yeah. terms of the right-wing sense of the nation. And how that sense of the nation needs to be preserved and and preserved in a kind of performative way. Yeah. Right? There's, a, there's a performance of, of nationhood going on here. Uh, and that performance is about being able to determine who should be here and who shouldn't. Yeah. And taking the people who shouldn't be here away so that the people who should be here can be protected. Yeah. So is the, I mean, is, is the ultimate kind of idea here... Um, that we need to be more attentive to how we can reimagine talking about immigration that moves beyond some of the yes the ways that the left tries to talk about immigration it seems to me that the the immigration debate ends up feeling so unsatisfactory for me mm-hmm. because the right talks about immigrants being a drain to the economy. Yeah. Certain sections of the left then respond by talking about how immigra- immigration benefits the country. And what both sides of that argument ignore, sometimes perhaps deliberately, is that on both sides it's actually an emotional debate. It's not a it's an emotion it's it's a performance of an emotional debate yeah. about insiderness and outsiderness. It's not about economics in terms of why immigration becomes such a key hot button issue. 
why so many people feel so strongly about emotion, yeah. about immigration. Uh, that isn't about economics, I don't think. No. Uh, and because the debate on both the right and the left is sometimes limited to the realm of economics, about whether immigration helps the country economically or not, that we it's almost like we're not talking about what is really at stake here. Which is how you can get to the point where we're talking. We start by talking about the right wing, the rise yeah. of the right wing, yeah. and the kind of the extreme right wing. Yeah. And how when we start having that conversation, we aren't talking about immigration yes. because the immigration debate is framed in economic terms. Yes. But in fact, yeah, it's really a debate about culture and values. And it identity. is. It is. Well, well, is that hopeless or hopeful? Can we change the discourse? <sighs> Isn't that what we do here? I hope that Majid Majid, who's now yes. an MEP, yes. who was the Lord Mayor of Sheffield last yes. year, member of the Green Party in Britain, he is unapologetically pro-immigration. Yes. Obviously, because he he is a an asylum he was an yeah. asylum seeker as a refugee from Somalia, and he has said, and always says, and bangs this drum: immigrants are great, and it's not an economic. Yeah. It's not an economic yeah. argument. No. It is It is an emotional argument. Yeah. To be fair, as the SNP in Scotland make a similar case. Yes. And there is a, a sense in which the SNP believe in Scottish independence. Mm-hmm. A, a Scottish independence, an independent Scotland would need an, an incoming labour force. So there are specific reasons there as well. But of course, once you start making that argument it becomes bound up in in the sort of emotional performance of nationhood. Where the way Scotland performs its nationhood becomes a pro-immigration inclusive uh, version of nationhood, as we we spoke about in a previous episode on left-wing nationalism. Yeah. Uh, Let us know what you think. Like us. Or don't like us. Tweet at us. Tweet at us. Rate us, review us. uh, And we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Vichardry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our music was provided by the Agrarians, and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be?